Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So many white guys. So many. So many white guys. So white. How much whiteness? All over the place. God damn. It's Phoebe Lynn Robinson, and you're listening to so many white guys from WNYC Studios. I'm here, as always, with Joni Mitch. How you doing, girl? I'm doing great. How are you? Everything's good. Bake Off just got back here to get his visa renewed, so he was in Calgary to do that. I know. What an amazing place. Yeah, it's kind of boring there. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot going on. Yeah. No offense to the Calgarians. <laughs> that sounds like Targaryens from <laughs> Game of Thrones. I mean, honestly, that's been like the most important thing in my life right now has been Game of Thrones. I haven't seen a single episode. Not a single one. Uh-oh. I I don't even know what to say. Like, I, I just don't think we're friends anymore. Uh, yeah, I think it's over. That bad, huh? Yeah. It's like the best show of all time. What are you watching? I mean, I have seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if that makes it any better. Is it the same author? (laughs) (laughs) It's so not the same author. Yes, it is. No, it's not, Phoebe. It is. No. (laughs) Okay, guys, this is a call to action. We got to get Joni Mitch. Game of Thrones is ending in four weeks. So you got to watch all eight seasons. That's, I don't know if I have that you kind of time. It. What else I don't are you know. doing? You have your day job from what, 10 to 6? Yeah. Okay. And, and then I, what else? I like to go to the gym. No. No more. That's out. I like to eat no. meals. What about sleeping? I mean, listen, Joni, this is your fault. You're right. Shame. Shame. I just feel like. We've known each other for so long. You know. know and I've been into Game of Thrones, and you were never like, let me just watch an episode. So do you feel like I'm a bad partner? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. But I think you can make it up to me. Okay. If you just, I think Nick has to go stay at a hotel because you can't be distracted. Or motel. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so good. There's so many hot people on it. There's so much good acting. There's so many mo- like there's so many times where I've cried watching the show because it's so intense. I gotta see it. I gotta watch it. You're winning me over. Okay. How about you watch the first three episodes? Okay, I can do that. And how many weeks do I have to watch that? Like tonight. <laughs> I got plans. Okay, I was th- in a week. Okay, I'll watch three episodes in a week. Okay, I think that's fair. Are they an hour? Yes. <laughs> she just made the worst face. <laughs> <laughs> and then here's the thing: for the series finale, you could come over to me and Bake Off's place, uh-huh. and we'll have snacks. And we'll watch it and we'll hold each other and cry. That sounds great. That sounds... Do I have to watch any episodes before I just watch the series finale? <laughs> you just watch the series finale and you're completely confused. I just want to be one and done. <laughs> Who's that? Yeah, the whole time. Wait, what's happening? <laughs> Who are they? 
Wait, I'm confused. <laughs> we just fucking kick you out. So is this England? <laughs> I'll watch it. I'll watch it. I'll check it out. Okay. But for real though, we got to get to the meat of this episode. Okay. Joni Mitch, as you damn well know, I recently went to Zambia and also Zimbabwe with Red and One, two amazing organizations. And full disclosure, I'm an ambassador for Red and One, which means I volunteer my time to help raise awareness around AIDS and extreme poverty for the organizations. They were both co-founded by Bono. Hey, Bon Bon. And they are just really trying to fight HIV and AIDS, and they're doing it in such an amazing sort of positive, beautiful way. So I'm really grateful that we could do this super duper 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 special episode to sort of talk about some amazing people who are involved with it. I feel so lucky I got to meet them. They're incredible. Yeah. And you know what? There was so much ground to cover and not a lot of time. I could have talked to them for about five hours, but we didn't have that. So anyway, this episode's amazing. But first, we have to take a short break because I guess we got to pay some bills. God damn. Hi, you guys. <laughs> Let's start this out on a serious note. That's how I always do my Insta stories. I'm just like, hi, guys. <laughs> okay, let's not do that. No, you can do it. Oh, you guys, I am so excited to bring this interview to you. The people you are about to meet and listen to are so inspiring to me. The first one is Gail Smith, who is the president and CEO of the One Campaign. Um, she's really cool, has spent decades working on global development. She served as a top advisor on development issues for two American presidents, Obama and Clinton. And um, she was also a journalist before that. And I mean, she's just a really brave, badass woman. Yeah, I loved her. Her energy is, like, amazing. And she has a very signature haircut. She does. Iconic. I, do you, can you describe it for the listeners, Phoebe? It is, like, white Grace Jones. Yeah, it's amazing. You know what I mean? She has, like, white hair and just, like, a really cool, like, baby high top. She also has, like, very queenly energy. Yes. She holds it down. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So we have her. And then our second guest who's also joining us is actor, singer, performer, and AIDS activist Javier Munoz. Who was just the best. He walked into the room and it was like, he's like the sun. Just like amazing, mm. wonderful energy. He was I so know. great. I loved him. If that name sounds familiar, you may know him from Hamilton, which is pretty cool. One of my favorite musicals of all time. He was a part of the whole development of the show from the beginning. Did you know that? Um, he was also Lin-Manuel Miranda's understudy and then took over for Lin when he stepped down. I saw him as Hamilton twice. I also think the Obamas saw Javier as Hamilton, which is amazing. And Javier is just such a powerful voice in the world today, whether it's in person, on his social media platforms about HIV and AIDS. He has been living with HIV for a while and talks so eloquently about his experiences and that of the people in his life. So here they are, Gail and Javier. Thank you, Gail. Thank you, Javier, for being here today on So Many White Guys. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Um, I wanted to just sort of 
have the audience get to know you guys personally before we talk about like all the amazing work that you guys do. So I want to start with Gail. Can you just sort of give us a background on how you got your start in sort of nonprofit work that eventually led you to, to have your focus be on AIDS and HIV? Sure. I wish I could say I was one of those people that from the time I was 10 years old, I was like, I really want to grow up and do the work I'm doing today. That wouldn't be true. Uh, The true story is that after college, I was traveling with a boyfriend who proved to be a jerk. So that was the end of him. But I kept going because I was so curious and I kept learning about things that as somebody who'd had an education, who'd been to college, who read the newspapers. But I kept saying like, well, wait a minute, why don't I know about this? And so Mm. I was in Egypt and I was in Sudan and there were refugees fleeing and all sorts of things happening. Uh, And again, I I was like, well, this never would have got to me if I wasn't here Mm. seeing it. So I contacted the BBC. Wow. And I became what's called a stringer. Uh, I started filing stories and it was great because I could just follow the curiosity to the next thing and the next thing. And I don't know that I've ever learned so much in my life. What did your parents think? They're like, are you going off with your boyfriend and now you're like getting into journalism where they just sort of like, Gail, what you doing? (laughs) They were a little nervous. Yeah. Because you got to remember this was a long way away. It wasn't like you could text your parents and Mm say, hi, I'm going to a war zone for six months. Take care. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... They were a little nervous, but they were always incredibly supportive of what I was doing. And I think what they were the most supportive of was two things. Do what you love. Mm. And if you're trying to make the world a better place, we got your back. That's awesome. And I feel like that's like kind of like a common theme with both of you because I feel like, Javier, you had like a very supportive family as well growing up. And he talked a little bit about like growing up in Brooklyn. Like I've lived in Brooklyn for 17 years. I love it so much. But whenever I see like young people here, I'm always sort of like, I would have been eaten alive. Like I'm like, you see like kids like just taking taking the subway to school. I'm just like, what? Like that's wild. Yeah, it was wild. It was. Uh, um, The neighborhood I grew up in is, it's interesting. As Brooklyn is changing, this is the one of the neighborhoods in Brooklyn that is so untouched (laughs) still. Mm. East New York, Brooklyn. It's uh, pretty much dead center of Brooklyn, but it's it's the projects of, of Brooklyn. Linden Projects. Uh, spent, I was there till I was about eleven or twelve, and uh, and yeah, it was wild. It was the eighties. It was aggressive. Yeah. This was a different city back then. You know, you really had your street smarts. Um, but I did. You know, that environment created a, a family unit that we stuck together. Mm-hmm. And they weren't, my folks weren't always completely supportive about my choices. Uh, yeah. You know, the arts wasn't exactly what they were, yeah. you know, hoping for me. What were they envisioning for you? Uh, well, I wanted to be an astronomer. So I I wanted wow. to study astrophysics up until high school. That's cool. And then I sat into a rehearsal with some friends and was watching their dress rehearsal of Annie Get Your Gun and was like, why am I not doing this? I auditioned for the next show. It was the king and I, and I played an Amazon guard. I had no lines. Yeah. I had no nothing to sing. <laughs> and I was like, this is what I want to do. And so, so cool. And I switched gears there. My folks were not crazy about it. But I got an agent my senior year. Did right you know you had so. um, musical talent, though? Like, were you, like, singing and around sure. the house? Okay. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. piano lessons mm-hmm. and, and, and dancing and all that stuff. So... 
by the time I, I had graduated high school and was uh, putting myself through school, mm-hmm. no one in my family had ever gone to college before me. So I was putting myself through Brooklyn College first, and then I took a year off, and then I transferred to NYU. But they were there in support. Once I got my agent, they were like, oh, wait, I think you can do this. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I know I can. Come yeah. on. Let's, let's go. And so, yeah, they've been in, like my backbone and my biggest cheerleaders all the way through. I love that. What's been like your your worst audition? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, absolute worst. Absolute worst. There's so many. Um, (laughs) It's like, how do I choose one? I mean, okay, so let's say like the worst dance audition. Mm -hmm. There was just an era where um, a lot of dance calls were, there was always a section of improvisation. And I just was like, I'm not that dancer. Yeah. Because a lot of the musical theater styles were something outside of what I did. Mm -hmm. I did hip hop. I did, you know, Latin dance. And like, if you want me to improv, we're doing like, you know... Something that's completely the opposite of what I do instinctually. Yeah. So I, I once broke out into a monologue in the middle of a improv. I was like, I don't know how to improv this stuff, so I'm going to do what I do. I act. Yeah. And I started a monologue. And wow. literally, I didn't. I got cut right away. Wow. But to this day, that, that creative team will tell that story, and it'll come back to me every now and then. I'm yeah. like, I heard one time that you. And I was like, yes, that's true. That's true. I did that. Um, but yeah, there there was some. There's been a lot of of auditions where you just yeah. you just bomb. Yeah. You just do. You crack. Your voice isn't there. Your your spirit isn't there. Your confidence isn't there, and you just chalk it up. Yeah. Right. It's like yeah. okay, next. Yeah. And it humbles you. <laughs> it and does. I feel like with both of you, like you just have to like go through like a lot of just like oh well, this didn't work out. Like I'm sure when you're you're reporting, you're going to like different war zones. You like write something. You're like oh well, this wasn't that great. Or like how. How was it being in a war zone? Because I remember we met, I think it was last year, mm-hmm. and you had, like, all these, like, fun stories about living in Africa. So you have just, like, a very sort of, like, crazy life. Can you talk a little bit about, like, being a journalist and sort of, like, being in these a country you never thought you were going to be in and having to sort of rise to the occasion a little bit? Yeah, it's um, some of the first things I did. I traveled to a number of war zones in Eritrea and then in northern Ethiopia. And there had been a few reporters into Eritrea, very few at all into northern Ethiopia. And the first trip I did was almost six months where we walked from eastern Sudan literally all across the country. That's intense. Like I didn't think it was that abnormal. I don't know what that says about me, but I was like, yeah, well, That's what we do. Yeah, (laughs) I guess so. And again, the thing that drove me was it was so interesting. Here was this part of the world. Uh, one of the poorest places on the planet mm-hmm. where peasants had basically organized and said, um, we're not doing this anymore. And they were doing all sorts of things. They were teaching women how to plow. Women had not been able wow. to plow their own land. They were building schools and clinics and then getting bombed pretty much every other day. Mm. Um, and I, I think the thing that I found is that people were enormously welcoming very, very friendly, mm-hmm. um, very generous when they had very little. Mm-hmm. And it was at times heart-wrenching, but this is going to sound like an odd thing to say. There were times that were really quite funny. I'll give you one yeah. example. I mean, I asked how to say excuse me mm-hmm. in their language because we often passed columns of other fighters on these mountain passes. Wow. And they told me, and so I would sort of run into somebody a little bit and say, excuse me. And I 
I got two-thirds of the way across the country before I realized I had told pretty much everybody in the country that I loved them. Oh. So it was that kind of playfulness. Yeah. Uh, let's just that. mess with her a yeah. little bit. That's really awesome. Yeah. So. That's amazing. Um, before we get into Red and One, I just want to ask you a little bit about Hamilton. Yes, please. I'm sorry to – I'm. I love no it apologize. so much. No apologies. I've seen it <laughs> twice, both times with you. And awesome. the first time I was like my face in my hands and I was just sobbing the oh. whole – like I was just like this is the most perfect play I've ever seen in my awesome. life. Thank you. So wild. <laughs> so I just want to sort of talk about your experience with Hamilton and how you feel like that sort of changed your life. And what I loved about it is when you think of Broadway, you sort of think of – a certain type of thing. Mm -hmm. And then when I saw Hamilton, I was like, oh, Broadway can be different. It can be just tons of brown people and Asian people and queer people, like, telling stories. And that really sort of, like, you know, cracked my head open. So can you talk about your experience a little bit with Hamilton? Absolutely. And to that point, Mm -hmm. um, in in working with Lynn, both in In the Heights and Hamilton, that's Mm -hmm. something you'll hear him say a lot. He wanted to create what he knows, Mm -hmm. right? And just, just art born from his life and who he is, his authenticity. And so you've got these two shows that are exactly that. And I think that's the hardest thing to deny about Hamilton is Mm -hmm. the authenticity about it, right? We're not asking, or the show is not asking anyone to to go into quite the fantasy that a lot of musical theater does. Mm -hmm. It's asking you to see America now, Mm. today, right? And through the lens of, where we came from, right? And performing that particular role never got, I mean, I've never stayed in a role that long mm. because there was, it was just layer after layer after layer to uncover, discover, and experiment even. There, there's just so much in one lyric, in one line, because it's going so fast, there's so much detail to keep plugging away at that it, we were, you know, I, I was there for three years. Mm. And... Honestly, it did change my life. It really yeah. did. Um, I'm grateful for the platform I now have mm. and what I can do with it. Yeah. And so I'm eternally grateful for what it's given me in that sense. And then I can use my platform for all the other things I want to accomplish in this world. And if only it was just the diversity in casting that it's, it's influenced, that would be tremendous. Yeah. Right? Like I love walking into auditions now. And they're gay characters, and they're minorities, and I love the waiting room. It's every shade of everything, and it's like, yes, this is what I was hoping for yeah. one day in my career. And um, I'll never not be grateful. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. that. And what I love about both of you is that you guys, in your own ways, are storytellers, which I think is very important as we now are going to talk about Red and One. Um, and just a little background for me, like, I heard about them in high school, I feel like. I'm a huge YouTube fan, and and I love Oprah, and Bono was on Oprah's show and talking about those organizations. So I want to have you guys sort of give a little background about, like, Red and One and how they were started so that people who maybe aren't as old as me, <laughs> maybe a little <laughs> bit younger and listening to this, can be like, oh, that's what these organizations are about. The way I look at it, I think this... You just talked, Javier, about having a platform to do the things you want to do. And I think the birth of one and then red came out of that same feeling on the part of Bono and yes. uh, 
his co-founder, Jamie Drummond. Yes. And I think the desire was to take some of that and use that voice to try and change the world. And I think it started off quite, quite humbly. It was, mm-hmm. it was at the time of the Ethiopian famine in 1984 mm-hmm. and 85. That was a famine that – it was the worst famine anybody could recall in literally thousands of years. Yeah. There were millions of people starving to death in the middle of a war. Uh, the world rallied but late in a very divided political way. So a lot of people died who shouldn't have died. And I think that artists around the world felt like they could give voice to this outrage that was happening and that the world wasn't paying attention to. So one came out of that, but there are a couple of very simple premises, and it's done great things in its time, fighting for debt relief, Mm -hmm. to break the burden of debt on the poorest countries fighting for more action on HIV and AIDS. But it's based on a simple premise that that if there's one thing we can agree on, can we kind of get ourselves together and do it? So it's got a history of being, I wouldn't even say bipartisan, I'd say nonpartisan. Mm. There's some seriously strange bedfellow stuff (laughs) that goes on. Thankfully so, yeah. It has to happen that way. It has to happen, and I will tell you, at at a time when things are as partisan as they are, mm-hmm. like hatefully partisan. I've known one for a long time, worked with them for a long time. I was in the Obama administration. I worked with my predecessor from the Bush administration on HIV and AIDS. Yeah. And I have to tell you, it. and I disagreed with George Bush on a lot, but it felt good mm-hmm. to say, we may disagree on a lot, but can we agree that like AIDS is a horrible thing and we all got to fight back. Red then came from that same spirit, uh, Bono again, Bobby Shriver, some others, looking at this idea of there's got to be a way that companies can get involved here and we can do more for HIV and AIDS and support this thing that was relatively new at the time called the Global Fund. So they came up with a simple idea that if companies would turn products red – then a percentage of the proceeds from the sale would go to the Global Fund. And to date, Red's mobilized more than $600 million in the fight against AIDS. Yeah, That's tremendous. amazing. Can you explain what the real quickly what the Global Fund is? Because I didn't know what it yeah. was until. Mm-hmm. So the Global Fund was born to mobilize money mm-hmm. in the fight against HIV and AIDS around the time that President Bush announced what's called PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief. And at a time... When, I mean, there were still places people would not say HIV or AIDS out loud. The death rate was breathtaking. It's still totally unacceptable, but it was breathtaking. Mm. And it was a virus that threatened to eat the middle out of entire countries, to take down their capacity, to take down the working members of a family who had to care for others. It was it was a five-alarm fire. Yes. Because there's a simple thing, and I'll just end with this, about this virus. If the virus is moving faster than we are, we lose, it wins. Mm. So we got to constantly catch up and get ahead of it. And we've made enormous progress. But if we slow down, it's going to go faster than we are. Yes. And if I may jump on that. Of course. Um, uh, it shouldn't 
matter where you live mm-hmm. and where you are in this world, you should have access to the treatments and care that is required for your life, to sustain your life. And, and the effectiveness of not just raising money for the Global Fund, but keeping it in the consciousness, keeping it in the dialogue, keeping us saying out loud HIV and AIDS. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not whispered. Mm-hmm. It's not put in the dark. Yeah. Keep it in the light. Keep it right there on the table. And that's the most valuable work, I, I think, because from there, then we can, we can keep having those conversations, right? Yeah. Can you talk about how and why you got involved? Because I think everyone yeah. has like their own personal reasons behind it. Totally. And so I, I'm really, I think a lot of listeners would love to hear. Okay. So like you, mm-hmm. I heard about Red in high school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, was very, I was very aware growing up in the 80s of HIV and mm-hmm. AIDS. There was no way you could not know. And um, I was 20 when I lost the love of my life mm-hmm. in uh, St. Vincent's Hospital. Uh, in my arms, in fact. And I uh, became very active from that moment forward. And the friends that his generation of friends who became my guardian angels and the the men who taught me, you know, my integrity and my dignity as mm-hmm. a gay man. Um, and, you know, I, I lost them all eventually slowly over time. And, um, and then I tested positive in 2002. And at that point, Based on my experience of of the people I'd lost and based on how I was learning to live with this. Mm -hmm. And and I mean the nitty-gritty things like dating Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, just just am I open about this at work, Mm -hmm. in employment? How do I deal with this? All those those things. I just hit a point in 2005, two years later, where I really decided I had to live openly about this. This, this this had to be – there was no other way than just to put it out there. And everyone has to accept that along with me. Yeah. My employers, my friends, my family, anyone I date, period. That's it. And it was not easy and it was absolutely terrible <laughs> in so many ways. And that's a whole other podcast. But the the <laughs> the impetus was there and when – over the years I found my language around it. I found how to – how to just fine tune my living with it and maintaining my dignity and my pride. And when um, my first interview for Hamilton, when I was about to take over the role, um, I had been the alternate all the way through, right? And then then Lynn was leaving and I was going to move up into the role full time. And I sat down with the Times. And as casually as saying, my hair is black and I'm Latino, I talked about my being HIV positive and and he stopped and asked if he could write that. And I was like, yeah. Mm. Like there's – I had already lived all these right. years yeah. openly. This is not changing. Please mm-hmm. run with that. And that momentum just sort of moved everything forward. And it was like, yeah, now I can actually use this platform to talk about what I live with mm-hmm. and and hopefully have that positive impact, right? Cut to I could never have imagined being able to be in the position to – work with Red, who I respect and admire so much and made a difference in my education and my awareness growing up 
And that's what led me to Red. I think, you know, a lot of times you think about, you know, organizations that are trying to, like, help better the world. You're just kind of like there actually are real results. And yes. so I think that is really powerful. And I think sometimes because there are really good results in terms of, like, you know, the amount of people still getting infected by HIV is certainly lower now. I think it's, what, a thousand? It's a thousand young women and girls every day. Yes. And that's lower than what it was before. So I think sometimes you can be like, oh, well. Right, we solved it. Yeah, exactly. So not there yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and that's one of the big challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, We're almost the the victims of our own global success because there's been such progress Mm -hmm. uh, that it's not as visible Mm -hmm. as it once was, and because people who are HIV positive, if they have access to the drugs, can live a perfectly full life. Yes, I think the. The fear, the tangible physical fear that we all felt yeah. in the 80s has receded for a lot of people. Now, mind you, it hasn't receded for a lot of people who are in the the sort of bullseye of, of where this epidemic is now. So part of what we're trying to do is get people the message that this isn't a disease of the past. It's a crisis of now. But to get two things across, we've made enormous progress. We can actually do this, mm-hmm. yeah. but we can't let up now. So how do you create an urgency? You know, you don't want to create it out of some perverse negativity. Yeah. You want to build on the fact that we can actually do this. Yeah. And so when we're looking at a 1,000 girls and women a day, yep. um, that is – terrifying that's a horrible figure and so unacceptable it is that's the word yeah it's unacceptable (laughs) and it sort of goes to like you know just globally how women are viewed as not equal Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so it's sort of like well it's fine if you know we don't care about them necessarily Mm -hmm. so how do we get people to get riled up about this in a way that i feel like they still haven't all the way like people hear the figure and they go oh wow but like you know, you know, I think, I mean, I have found that with that figure, mm-hmm. people are like, what? Mm. A thousand women and girls every day? Yeah. So that gets their attention. Yeah. I think it all rests in this fundamental notion of equality. Mm-hmm. And thank heavens, this notion of equality seems to be getting more and more people's attention on a host of issues yeah. around yes. the world right now. <laughs> yes, so, it is. Yes. So that's a very good thing. And I think one of the things we have to understand about where we are today with this epidemic is that it's now focusing, you know, it's like these viruses are evil mm-hmm. serpents with brains, yeah. right? And they're, it's focusing on those who are the most vulnerable. So young women and girls, mm-hmm. people that nobody wants to talk about, touch, or treat, right? Disenfranchised minorities, the gay mm-hmm. community in some countries. It's mm-hmm. just like nobody's going to go there. So I think it's a it's a fight to say, yes, we can do this. It's also the fight mm-hmm. for equality. And here's the deal. If we don't fight for equality in fighting against HIV and AIDS, this virus is going to get stronger, and it doesn't pay much attention to who you are or where you live. Absolutely. It will come after you, including here. So yeah. so I think we've got to root it in that notion of equality. Um, again, we are finding, you know, it's very hard to find people who don't want to champion the rights and equality of young women and girls. Mm-hmm. There's real momentum there. We've got a big campaign called Poverty is Sexist because it is. Yeah. 
And yeah. that's that's sort of like what I I'll talk about going to Zambia. Then I want to hear yeah. about like when you traveled to Africa with yeah, Red. Yeah. But like one of the things that I loved about Zambia, I mean, what I saw like this sort of concentration on encouraging girls to be empowered. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, them like starting their own businesses in the community. Like I think it was like a group of like four teenage girls and they started like their own like fashion like line and they want to have like a runway show and they're uh, girls who are like want to work in tech. And so it was just really you know, I think a lot of times you talk about, you know, feminism in America and like I want to, you know, make as much money as the guys. And like, yes, of course, that's also important in Hollywood. But like on a bigger scale it's like to give young girls the confidence to be like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be 13. I'm going to start a local business selling like this big good that I do in my community and grow that and scale that up into a business, I think is so powerful and fundamental to getting equality to actually happen because mm-hmm. it's not about like, we're going to give you this opportunity, right? No. It's about, hey, we're going to like encourage you to then create your own opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's huge, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. That's so, the biggest difference yeah. between... Like, if you empower young women and girls to pursue their dreams, yes. you can fight AIDS that way and give them the confidence that, Javier, you have being public about being HIV positive. Yes, yes, yes. And it's it's not handing them the power. Mm-hmm. It's creating the environment, putting the tools on the table to let them take the reins yeah. and say, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I'm I, so glad you were able to see it up yeah. close and personal. So can you talk a little bit about, you went, did you go East this Wichini, year? Uh, last year. Last year. Last okay. summer. Yeah. yeah. And it was, uh, again, like you, right? It was it was absolutely eye-opening. It's one thing to sort of have the numbers and, and, and all those sort of information. Mm-hmm. And then another thing to, to, to see it, to be there, mm-hmm. to just see it in person. And there's a clear difference mm-hmm. of what I've got and what doesn't exist there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to an LGBT group that had to meet in secret. Uh, their location changes wow. every meeting, and they rely on the kindness of allies. And this particular meeting was happening under a canopy of trees in the backyard of someone who was an ally. And they set up this mobile clinic that has to, you know, pack up and move as soon as they're done. And these people were were fighting for their lives. Yeah. And it doesn't negate what I went through, mm-hmm. but I had GMHC. I had the Actors Fund. Mm-hmm. I had a social worker. Mm-hmm. And within nine to ten months of, of testing positive, I had a doctor. And I had my insurance in place. And I had my medicine. Yeah, you had a support system. And it was... Yeah. Right? And I could make the choice to live openly yes. about it. Mm-hmm. I could make the choice to safely live the life I've led. Yeah. None of that is small. That's I could not come back to my life here and not appreciate... I mean, literally every single moment, Hmm. right? I leave my apartment and the safety I have in knowing the odds of me getting arrested for being a gay man, let alone living openly with HIV, is not going to happen. Yeah. Right? And so, again, doesn't negate what still happens here, right? Like I just went through it and this is like a little quick summation Mm -hmm. of – Changes in our in our healthcare system and coverage and medications not being covered and such and such and such. And I just went through this this whole having to reapply to find a way to afford my medication. And I ran into paperwork snafu. This actually that just happened last week that really threatened for me me possibly missing 
my doses.、Mm. And that's in this day and age, and that's in New York City. And I had to hustle to fix all that to get my medic, just to get my pill, right?、Mm. My one a day. And it's all progress, but it's still, we still have so much more to do.、Yeah. But still, all that, and I still have more. I still have immediate、mm-hmm. access, and I'm not, I'm not fearing for my safety、mm-hmm. on a day to day basis.、Mm-hmm. That's powerful. So, I want to go back real quick about the、um, 1,000 girls being infected、yeah. a day. And, you know, one of the things that's great about what Red has done is treatment. So, I have this here that costs as little as 30 cents a pill to give to a mom, and that will stop the spread. Of HIV. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like that's something that's not widely known. No, it's,、yeah. it's not. Mm-hmm. And it's,、mm-hmm. you know, in the early days, one of the biggest、uh, constraints was that antiretroviral drugs, AIDS drugs, were so expensive and you had to take,、mm-hmm. I don't know, 20. I was taking eight when I first started. Yeah.、Like. Oh, wow.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you are living below the poverty line, That adds yeah, up my goodness,、yes. over the course of a month or a year. But the fact is, it's much simpler and it's much more affordable than it's, than it's ever been. And I think the question we have to ask is so, like, okay, what are we waiting for? Why don't we just go ahead and get this done? Because here's the thing also, the more people who are on treatment, the fewer people get the virus.、Yes. Because、mm-hmm. if you're on treatment, your ability to transmit it is, is reduced. So, Undetectable equal untransmutable. Yeah. Is yeah. The, the sort of catchphrase around that. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. So we ramped up funding big time when we found out that treatment is actually prevention. Yes. So it's, it's cheaper and cheaper. I, I think the big constraints now, the hurdles we got to jump over and fight for, one is money.、Mm-hmm. Yes.、Uh, the second is access.、Mm-hmm. Some people, because they've got the short end of the stick or they're disenfranchised or they're hidden, don't have access. To the drugs that they need. And then there's logistics. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, it's just physically difficult、mm-hmm. in some places where there aren't the clinics or facilities that are available elsewhere. The good news is those are all surmountable problems. Yes. yes. It's not like,、uh, how do you stop weather? It's, yeah. Those are things <laughs> we <laughs>、right. can do. Yes, we、yeah. so、can do. Yes. We、yeah. can kind of do that.、Um, So, again, it's progress and progress and progress. But unless and until we make sure that decision makers around the world know that we know that we haven't won this fight yet、yeah. and that they're on the hook for keeping the momentum, that's going to be our biggest problem. But we can, we can convince them. Yeah. I wanted to add、mm-hmm. um, that your question reminds me of a family that we met in East Watini. And the husband contracted HIV. Lost his job, became a sort of pariah in the neighborhood.、Mm-hmm. The, the mother then contracted HIV. She started working with a clinic that was in, not in that town, but was relatively close enough for her to, to travel to. And she started working as a volunteer there and getting information, getting her treatment, getting things that were needed. And she eventually got her husband to finally seek treatment as well. And through their treatment, through that pill、mm-hmm. that you mentioned, They were able to give birth to an HIV negative daughter、yes. that we、wow. got to meet、oh. uh, on that trip. So, that pill, yes, it works. And、yeah. in that particular region, the year's statistic、mm-hmm. of children born with HIV from HIV positive mothers was zero. 
and that's the accomplishment wow. and success of that pill. But that pill is needed. That's that's part of the fight is to keep access mm-hmm. and keep the frequency and keep it dependable and sustainable for these communities. And then, you know, these children are not going to take HIV into their future. I know you get this a lot, too, where people want to ask, like, well, how can I get involved? What are some things that I can do yes. in my everyday life? I think a lot of listeners would love to hear it. You can do a lot that will have impact that's not that hard. You can sign on to petitions. Uh, We've got an open letter that we did for International Women's Day. I think somebody here was pretty big deal. It it went big, but we're going to keep it alive. When I I go and I do talks and and events and things, it's it's like folks do ask, what can I do? And I think it starts, you know, that immediate thing that it starts with is your individual choice to be open about it, whether Mm -hmm. you're HIV positive or not. If there's a walk that you can participate in, Mm -hmm. put that on your social media. By doing so, Mm -hmm. you're letting your community, your friends, your people in your life know that you support this cause. They can talk to you about this. How many people in one's life might be living with HIV and that person doesn't know it? I have lived openly with it and I have friends seven, eight years into the friendship who are like, so I've been HIV positive this whole time. And it's like, mm. whoa. Wow. <laughs> but yeah. it's, that's their journey to mm-hmm. get to that place where they can start sharing that with the people in their lives. Mm-hmm. But how much hope it gives them to see someone else just supporting it. Yeah. And just to add one thing here that it it worries me, but it gives me all the greater determination to do exactly what you're talking about, Javier, which is to talk about it. Mm-hmm. We're seeing the reemergence of stigma yes, in a lot are. of places. Very much so, And that's so, what yes. you mm-hmm. talked about seeing. But it's it, for those of us who lived through the first wave of this, it's this very haunting – like I thought we batted much of that down, not yeah. all of it. And we can't ever go back to that place. Ever. Ever. And talking about it – you know, there are ways to talk about it. People are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, you can use humor, you can use shock value, use whatever it takes. You can tell your own story, you can tell the story of somebody else. I think we've just got to keep doing that and standing up for those people who are the most disenfranchised because they're Mm. the ones that are being hit the hardest right now. And that's true in Africa. It's also true in the United States Yes, in terms of, of what we're seeing. So. Standing with them, again, it all comes back to this fundamental thing of equality. Yes. Yeah. So I just want to close by sort of asking you guys what you hope for the future and how people will continue to be active in this fight. An HIV-free generation. Hmm. That's what I hope for. Hmm. We can do it. Yes. We We can can do it. Yes, yes, yes. So there you have it. Gail and Javier, who just inspire me every single damn day. For more information about Red and One, you can visit them at red.org and one.org, or you can follow them on social media. Joni Mitch, how are we going to keep going with this show? I mean, how do we make jokes now? Yeah, you can't really top that. Uh. I think that was it. That's how you top it, Phoebe. (laughs) (laughs) Want to do the credits? Yes. The So Many White Guys team includes Amory Baldonado, Joanna Salataroff, Paula Schumann, Joe Plord, Kika Zima, Isaac Jones, Nora Wazwaz, and moi, Phoebe 
Robinson. Our theme song was written by a white dude and sung by a bunch of other white dudes. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dope Queen Babes. And if you still can't get enough of me, I'm going on the road with my stand-up tour. It's called Sorry Harriet Tubman. It's hilarious. So go to PhoebeRobson.com, find out where I'm going, and go get your tickets now. I'll be in Boston. I'll be in Atlanta, San Francisco, Sacramento, Nashville, all the places. So come see me. I don't want to see no empty seats. Every show better be fucking sold out. Okay, bye. Bye.